Greetings and welcome to episode number 13 of Unrelated Things. This is the podcast where I talk about things that interest or irritate me that I've seen in the news lately and share some of my favorite things with you. You can find out more about Unrelated Things or you can make a donation at unrelatedthings.net. You can provide feedback at unrelatedthings at gmail.com and you can follow Unrelated Things on Twitter or on Facebook. On to the narration and notification. Top pick. So my top pick for this episode is Mr. Tom Merritt. Tom Merritt is a podcaster who is involved in several of my favorite podcasts. If you listened to earlier episodes, you might remember that in episode two of Unrelated Things, I talked about the show Framerate. Framerate is hosted by Tom Merritt and Brian Brushwood, and on Framerate they discuss films, TV, cord cutting, and anything else of related interest. After that, in episode number five, I talked about the podcast Tech News Today, the daily news program which is hosted by Tom Merritt, along with Ayaz Akhtar, Sarah Lane, and Jason Howell. Both of these podcasts are part of the Twit Network, which creates a number of podcasts that I listen to regularly. Twit has decided not to renew Tom's contract. Uh, In the middle of last year, Tom relocated out of the location where the Twit studios are, so has been working remotely, but has continued on the programming that he had previously been on um, as a remote host. So that went into the decision of Twit to not renew Tom's contract for the new year, and he will no longer be participating in either of those two shows come January 1st. Well, this is bad news on its face. I am not too concerned about having less Tom Merritt-based entertainment. Why not? Because Tom has a lot of things going on. Tom already co-hosts Autopilot and Sword and Laser and East Meets West, all good podcasts, which are part of Frog Pants Studios. He appears regularly on the morning stream. He also appears on the Mac show from British Tech, the British Tech Network, among others. Tom and Scott Johnson have already announced the relaunch of Current Geek, a weekly program. And Tom and Brian Brushwood have already announced Cord Killers, which will carry on the frame rate tradition. So two new shows from Tom Merritt coming very soon. Tom has also revealed that he is planning a daily news program, and he has been rumored to have swapped recipes with Dan Benjamin of 5x5 Network. At least that is the way that Dan Benjamin characterized their contact. On top of all that, Tom Merritt has recently published a novel called Lot Beta and a comic with Len Peralta called Ten State. 
And there's that tech history project and calendar and a bunch of other things that I don't even know about that Tom Merritt is involved in. So with all of this and more to come, I am not at all concerned about a shortage of Tom Merritt in 2014. And I look forward to new content and new programming. All right, cool. This, this uh, story here is from the Associated Press, published by Business Insider <clears throat> in Taylorsville, Utah. Members of a Mormon congregation in a Salt Lake City suburb encountered someone they thought was a homeless man at church on Sunday. What they did not know was the man was a bishop for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. At least five people asked David Musselman, great name, to leave the church property in Taylorsville. Some gave him, him money, and most were indifferent. He said he disguised himself as a homeless man to teach his congregation a lesson about compassion. To make his appearance more convincing, he contacted a Salt Lake City makeup artist to transform his familiar face to that of a stranger that not even his family recognized. During the uh, service, he ended up going up to the front of the church and revealing himself after having interacted with members of the congregation just to have the open discussion with them about compassion for people that you don't know. And another thing. Story from theguardian.com. Lisa Servan is a professor of urban policy at the New School in New York who studies low-income communities. In 2012, she decided to take her research a little deeper. Quote, I've worked in poor communities for so long, she says. I thought, I know poor people are pretty smart about their money, actually, because they don't have very much of it. And it just led me to understand, led me to want to really understand what was at the bottom of it all. So in the Bronx, Servan became one of three cashiers working day shifts at one of Right Check's 12 locations in the borough. Right Check is a check cashing service. What she saw surprised her. She started to gain new insight into why wealth inequality in America causes people to skirt the banking system with its hidden fees and long check clearing times. Quote, I did not expect to find this. I don't necessarily think that check cashers are the answer. But I do think that right now, given the way that banks operate, check cashers are doing a better job of servicing a lot of people. One of the key things that has happened since the 2008 financial crisis is that you have more and more people who are living paycheck to paycheck. So, for example, in the Bronx, 75% of the people have no discretionary income. There is zero slack in their budget. So one of the things that becomes incredibly important to them is being able to get their money fast and to have liquidity. If you go to the bank, they want to hold your check until it clears. It's less risk for them. Whereas, as, whereas at the check casher, they charge you a little bit of money. In New York State, it's 1.95% of the face value, which is about the lowest. In California, it's more. People are really aware that they're paying that. They're paying that price for liquidity. The other thing is if you were to map the increase in the check cashing industry over the last 10 years, there would be another line that would look very similar on the graph. 
That would be the increases in bank fees. If you compare it to 10 years ago, ATM fees have gone up, monthly service fees have gone up, last year overdraft fees were at an all-time high. I think it was $38 billion. So there's that piece of the situation, the straight-up cost of banking. This story was really interesting to me, and it goes on if you want to take a look at it. Look for theguardian.com. And let me see if there's an author here. don't see the author on the page I'm looking at, but the title of it is Poor People Aren't Making Ends Meet, Inside Payday Lending. So you can check out more about this. It, I found it really interesting because it definitely enlightened me about the check cashing industry. I always had a, I always kind of lumped them in with like the pawn shop type businesses <clears throat> and businesses who may be there to take advantage of people who have little other uh, choice and opportunity. But this kind of opened my eyes because the banks that we, that many of us deal with on a regular basis, take great advantage of us with all of the fees and all the costs and all the rules that they make us follow so that we can give them our money to hold. And that's just yeah. the way it is. Apple stores to implement iBeacon location technology to improve service and boost sales. <clears throat> iOS 7's flashy launch earlier this year overshadowed a breakthrough new feature, iBeacons, a location-based technology with profound implications for industries such as retail. An iBeacon system could allow a store to install transmitters that would wirelessly connect to an iPhone and tell the phone its location with respect to items on shelves. The service will allow a customer to walk to a product and then receive a notification on their iPhone with additional information such as pricing and features. And this story is from 9to5Mac by Mark Gurman. Select Apple stores will begin piloting the functionality in the coming weeks. Because the technology relies on the latest Apple software and hardware, users will need devices running iOS 7 that support Bluetooth 4.0. Users can choose not to receive these alerts. The technology could be used for locating customers waiting for upcoming Genius Bar appointments, could be used for presenting advertisements or deals relative to nearby products, or even for purchasing products with enhanced security via the Apple Store. These other uses will likely arrive farther into the future. Another feature in testing is the ability for a customer to be notified of a repair being ready for pickup if they are in or near the Apple Store. The Apple Store app is already capable of knowing if a customer is in an Apple Store, but the iBeacon Geofence technology will greatly improve location accuracy. <clears throat> because this technology operates on Bluetooth 4.0, all of the recent iOS devices, which do include Bluetooth 4.0, can be enabled as a beacon or as a receiver. I think this is uh, interesting new technology for retail. I think that as long as this is opt-in technology, I don't have any problem with it. If people choose to join, based on some benefits that they receive from it, then that's fantastic. I think the 
small risk is that stores may implement this type of feature or function and not inform customers that they are gathering data. Um, so I think that's, that's the only place where there could be potential for harm. Of course, in the described uses where you would get notified about a product or notified about a sale, clearly you're going to know that you're being uh, interacted with within the store. So that is not a bad thing. Let's get deeper into the conversation. Okay, let's shift gears and get deeper into the conversation. I have seen a whole string of these stories. This one that I had saved was back from November 20th, but I have seen even more recent headlines, um, almost weekly, where there's uh, significant bombings and significant deaths from bombings in Iraq. So it just makes me wonder, what, what kind of nation did we leave behind after we invaded Iraq and deposed the existing government there. This particular story is from the New York Times, written by Alan Cowell. A wave of apparently coordinated bombings hit bakeries and public markets in Baghdad on Wednesday, killing at least 42 people and wounding more than 90, many of them as they rushed to shop during a break in heavy rainstorms, according to the police residents and medical officials. One attack struck Shiite Muslims during religious observances for Muharram, the first month of the Islamic calendar, as they prepared food for the poor, witnesses said. That bombing in the Karada neighborhood killed seven people and wounded 19. Another bomb erupted near a bakery where people were buying bread for breakfast, killing five and wounding 13. In Adhamiya, a mostly Sunni neighborhood in northern Baghdad, a bomb in a parked car exploded near another bakery, killing three people. I just wanted to get breakfast for my kids, said Musin Mutadar, 45, who was wounded in his leg and back from an explosion near one of the bakeries. I never did something bad in my life. What did we do to deserve this? I hope one day I wake up from this nightmare. The latest bombings in Baghdad came just days after explosions targeting public markets and security checkpoints killed 44 across Iraq on Sunday, including 20 in a northern Turkmen-dominated city and wounded more than 100. As I said, this is a regular occurrence in Iraq these days, and I just wonder how, how what, what we would think and how we would feel if there were, you know, a hundred people a week in the U.S. that were being killed by these types of bombings, and what would our reaction be? Oh, boy, howdy. <clears throat> From an unlikely source for me, foxnews.com, California teens set on fire doesn't want to be too harsh on attacker. A Northern California teen who was set on fire on a bus in what authorities believe is a hate crime says the 16-year-old accused of the attack shouldn't be charged as an adult. Sasha Fleischman spoke to reporters about the horrific ordeal after leaving a hospital in time for Thanksgiving 
more than three weeks after suffering second and third degree burns when the teen's skirt was set on fire on an AC transit bus in Oakland. The legs of the 18-year-old high school senior who doesn't identify as either male or female are still heavily bandaged. The lawyer for the suspect, Richard Thomas, 16, of Oakland, says it was just a prank that went wrong. But Fleischman said, I think you should really know better than to light someone's clothing on fire. I think you should be able to realize that that's not just a funny prank, the teen said Thursday. Prosecutors have charged Thomas as an adult with aggravated mayhem and felony assault with hate crime enhancements. Police said Thomas told investigators he was homophobic. But Fleischman says Thomas, quote, probably didn't realize how big of a deal it was going to be, how harmful it would be. I don't want to be too harsh because people do dumb things, especially when they're teenagers. If I had my way, I'd have him tried as a juvenile, Fleischman said. So this story struck me just because of the attitude of the victim of this crime um, who was seriously injured uh, by the crime but wants to show leniency against his attacker. One of the biggest deals ever in the history of ever. So Black Friday's come and gone in sales and deals and, and bargains and doorbusters were <clears throat> flying madly as businesses uh, jockeyed for the customer's wallet. I was really, really taken aback by watching some of the uh, shoving and pushing and, and fighting um, videotapes on YouTube. I only watched like three or four um, at some of these retailers who had these big Black Friday deals where they had, uh, you know, a, a, a flat screen TV for 150 bucks or something and people were fighting to get them. Really, the one of the lowest uh, forms of or lowest displays of uh, human or humanity that I've seen in quite a while, and I don't only fault the participants, though I do fault them. They were the ones that were acting in inappropriate ways, but the businesses that set up the conditions to allow that to happen, um, I think are equally to blame. But one company bucked the trend on Black Friday, and Eric Johnson wrote about them in allthingsd.com. Cards Against Humanity has become a very popular game, popular card game. So they had their Black Friday sale, and the story reads like this. With pre-Black Friday sales starting well in advance of Thanksgiving and some carrying all the way through to the Monday after, online holiday sales are already a joke. But when the makers of the popular card game Cards Against Humanity are, but the makers of the popular card game Cards Against Humanity are really driving home the point today. We're participating in the tradition of Black Friday, an American holiday, celebrating a time when the Wampanoag tribe saved the settlers of the Plymouth Colony with incredible deals, the game's website reads. Their once-in-a-lifetime Black Friday sale, everything, everything on the site costs 
$5 more than the regular price. And talk about commitment to the joke. Cards Against Humanity's listings on Amazon and Shopify have actually also had their prices increased for one day. This isn't the first time the Cards Against Humanity team has monkeyed with prices after raising more than 15000 on Kickstarter way, way back in 2011. The game was frequently sold out due to high demand, so its creators put it all up for free online under a Creative Commons license, along with instructions for printing out the free version at home. The effect of this, of course, was that more copies of the then-unknown game were out in the wild in quote-unquote pirated form, and trotting those copies out at parties increased demand even more. These days, the the $30 game and its four $15 expansion packs, those were the prices with the additional $5, are much more reliably in stock online, but the main game is still available to download, but the expansion packs are not. So a really interesting story about Cards of Humanity, humanity and their reaction to uh, the Black Friday sale bonanza that is out there, and their way of actually tweaking the media and getting some press for their product. I think this story is very good, with the exception of the use of the word pirated um, when the company decided to put its product up free online under Creative Commons license. Those um, copies of the game were not pirated. They were licensed copies of the game under Creative Commons. Aside from that, I think it is a very good story about Cards Against Humanity and how they kind of uh, played the system for Black Friday. <laughs> so I just wrapped up watching all of the television series Earth 2 on Netflix. Earth 2 aired in 1994-95 and lasted only one 20-episode season. In Earth 2, colonists crash land on the planet that they set, had set out to colonize, and they begin the long trek to their originally designated landing place. The planet is not what they had expected and has both human and native inhabitants that pose various challenges to their survival. I'm a fan of sci-fi TV, and I was looking for a good series to watch through, and Earth 2 holds up pretty well for a 20-year-old program. Some of the effects are dated, and some of the planet's native inhabitants are a bit too uh, puppet-like. A couple of the, uh, the species on the planet look a little bit too much like Muppets, um, but there is a race on the planet called Terrans, and the Terran race totally holds up could appear in a movie today, and the effects of them moving through the Earth are still very, very effective. So it, it does hold up pretty well, um, despite its age. <clears throat> in addition to their challenges in dealing with the native inhabitants, not everyone that's in the landing party is actually there for their outwardly stated reasons. Some people didn't intend to be there at all, only being part of the crew that was transporting the colonists. And some people came along but have ulterior motives and connections um, 
that dictate some of the things that they do in interacting with their fellow colonists. So I, I do definitely recommend you take a look, and if you like sci-fi programs, it's a good series to watch. Earth 2 stars Deborah Ferentino, who would later play Beverly Barlow in my favorite show ever, Eureka, which is definitely what moved this program into my must-watch must column from my Maybe Watch. It also stars John Danzinger, who went on to voice numerous TV cartoon roles, including 11 episodes of Gargoyles, which actually starred Sally Richardson Whitfield, also of Eureka. Uh, he voiced Lex Luthor in Superman and the Justice League, and actually other programs as well. He voiced Savage Opress in Star Wars The Clone Wars, and Mr. Krabs in 184 episodes of SpongeBob SquarePants. And John Danziger currently plays Sheriff August Corbin in the TV show Sleepy Hollow. Additionally, Earth 2 included among its cast Antonio Sabato Jr., Rockman Dunbar, who played Eli Roosevelt on Sons of Anarchy, Terry O'Quinn, who played Locke on Lost and later went on to Hawaii 5 and then uh, that TV show about the building... That was like 666 Park Ave or something like that, which didn't last very long at all. And also starred Tim Curry. It is definitely worth watching if you enjoy that genre of television. I didn't have the guts. All right, you should have the guts. Electric Cars' new 800-mile record run on a single charge. Faye Sunderland writes in the greencarwebsite.co.uk, a team in Japan has set a new record for the distance traveled by an electric vehicle on a single charge, running for a staggering 807 miles. The team took their adapted Suzuki Every mini vehicle and drove it day and night, taking turns at the wheel to clock up the mileage at speeds of around 18 miles per hour. At over 800 miles, the record is more than double the best that today's production electric vehicles can do. Even an 85 kilowatt hour Tesla Model S is only rated as achieving up to 310 miles per charge. And that is one of the current production vehicles that has the highest um, uh, rating for miles per charge with a lot of the production vehicles out there in the 100 to 130 mile range. So really uh, pretty exciting news for the electric, electric car industry that this group was able to get this particular vehicle to run 800 miles on a single battery charge. I think you just nailed it. So a website called todayifoundout.com, uh, and this, I think, came... I, I found this to be at gizmodo.com, um, but todayifoundout.com, a story written by Carl Smallwood. And I'm not going to read the title, because I think I sh we should ease into that part. In 1962, JFK signed the National Security Action Memorandum 160. 
exciting stuff, which was supposed to ensure that every nuclear weapon the U.S. had be fitted with a permissive action link, or PAL, basically a small device that ensured that the missile could only be launched with the right code and with the right authority. There was particularly a concern that the nuclear missiles the United States had stationed in other countries, some of which were with somewhat unstable leadership, could potentially be seized by those governments and launched. With the PAL system, this became much less of a problem. This system was supposed to be essentially hotwire proof, making sure only people with the correct codes could activate the nuclear weapons and launch the missiles. However, though the devices were supposed to be fitted on every nuclear missile after JFK issued his memorandum, the military continually dragged its heels on the matter. In fact, it was noted that a full 20 years after JFK had ordered PALS be fitted on every nuclear device, half of the missiles in Europe were still protected by simple mechanical locks. Most that did have the new system in place weren't even activated until 1977. Those in the U.S. that had been fitted with the devices, such as the ones at, in the Minuteman silos, were installed under the close scrutiny of Robert McNamara, JFK's Secretary of Defense. However, the Strategic Air Command greatly resented McNamara's presence, and almost as soon as he left, the code to launch the missiles, all 50 of them, was set to 0000000. 000. Oh, and in case you actually did forget the code, it was handily written down on a checklist handed out to soldiers. As Dr. Bruce G. Blair, who was once a Minuteman launch officer, stated, quote, Our launch checklist, in fact, instructed us, the firing crew, to double-check the locking panel in our underground launch bunker to ensure that no digits other than zero had been inadvertently dialed into the panel. So for years, the security locks that were placed on the nuclear missiles in the United States had a password that was less secure than your grandmother's password. It was eight zeros. I don't even know where to start. GigaOM checks out Apple's North Carolina data center's renewable energy infrastructure. This story from tuaw.com, T-U-A-W.com, from Stephen Sand, S-A-N-D-E. Apple's huge maiden North Carolina data center has recently become something else, a net power provider of clean energy to Duke Energy. GigaOM's Katie Fahrenbacher took a look at Apple's new power production facilities, which generate a total of 50 megawatts of electricity for a data center that uses about 40 megawatts of power. There's a 100-acre 20-megawatt photovoltaic solar farm right next to Apple's data center, a second 20-megawatt solar farm, farm about 15 miles away from the center, and a 10-megawatt fuel cell farm that's also adjacent to the data center. So all in all, Apple is producing more power than it is using at their North Carolina data center. 
I've never heard dumber dialogue. <laughs> oh, that wasn't dumb dialogue. That was the wrong button. I'm not kidding you. I am not. Google settles multi-state safari ad tracking complaint for $17 million. Story from Consumerist by Chris Moran. Apple's Safari browser has a default setting that blocks websites from setting third-party cookies that can be used to track users' browsing behavior. But for about nine months in 2011-2012, Google's DoubleClick ad serving service was able to get around that roadblock in order to provide user-specific ads to people with Apple computers, and more importantly, users of iPhones and iPads. Google has already been hit with a $22.5 million federal penalty, and today it has agreed to settle a multi-state claim for an additional $17 million. In addition to the states that will divvy up the $17 million payout, Google has pinky swore to the following. One, it will not deploy the type of code used in this case to override a browser's cookie blocking settings without the consumer's consent unless it is necessary to do so in order to detect, prevent, or otherwise address fraud, security, or technical issues. Nice language in there that lets the NSA get in. Two, it will not misrepresent or omit material information to consumers about how they can use any particular Google product, service, or tool to directly manage how Google serves advertisements to their browsers. And three, it will improve the information it gives to consumers regarding cookies, their purpose, and how the cookies are managed by consumers using Google's products or services and tools. So $17 million to the states on top of $22.5 million federal penalty and a few rules that aren't terribly onerous on Google. I don't know what Google earns in a year, but I think the uh, you know $40 million that they're going to pay in fines is not all that onerous for them to absorb in this case. I'm going to move on now. H&M has pledged to pay a living wage to 850,000 textile workers after expressing frustration over lack of action by governments to address working conditions in Asian factories in the wake of the Rana Plaza disaster. The world's second biggest clothing retailer said it would support factory owners at two factories in Bangladesh and one in Cambodia to adopt a fair living wage next year. The Swedish company, which has more than 200 stores in the UK, will then expand the program to cover the 750 factories that supply its clothes by 2018. H&M said, we believe the wage that the wage development in production countries, which is often driven by governments, is taking too long. H&M wants to take further action and encourage the whole industry to follow. So good, positive step taken by H&M to support the people that manufacture the products that make that company money. And that story was from The Guardian. And I believe later on I'll have another story about the factory workers in Bangladesh with a different take. It's horrid. All Things D, writer Eric Hesseldahl had this story uh, written at the end of November. Imagine one day you're using the internet the same way you do every day 
reading the news, shopping, sending email, checking your bank and credit card balances, maybe even doing some work for your employer. Typically, but not always, the bits being sent from your computer, tablet, or phone will flow from where you are to where they need to be via the most direct route available. But what if they didn't? What if someone slipped in between you and the various servers you're connecting with and diverted your traffic elsewhere, funneling it through a choke point of their choosing so they could capture, copy, and analyze it? Your data takes some extra and imperceptible, imperceptible milliseconds to get where it's going, and ultimately everything you're doing online works just fine. But your traffic has been hijacked by parties unknown, and you're none the wiser that it has happened. You might think that this story is about the NSA from that description and the information that we've heard about the NSA recently from the Snowden leaks. And actually, I'm not 100% certain that it's not about the NSA, but I'll go on. In network security circles, this is what's known as a man-in-the-middle attack, and for years it has been understood to be possible in theory but never seen in practice. That changed earlier this year when someone, it is unclear who, diverted internet traffic from some 150 cities around the world through networks in Belarus and Iceland. These attacks occurred throughout February and into March. Then they stopped for a while. The attacks resumed in May, and almost right away, the choke point switched from Belarus to Iceland. For about five minutes, literally, traffic was routed through traffic was routed through an Icelandic ISP called Nyherj HF. Then they stopped again until July. This time the venue was again in Iceland. Beginning on July 31, traffic from a large VOIP company, Renesis wouldn't name it was diverted through an internet service provider called Open Curfew that oddly announced access to 597 different IP blocks versus the usual three. The result caused routine internet traffic to take some routes that were so indirect as to be absurd. For a brief time on August 2nd, data traffic between two providers in Denver didn't just flow across town as it normally would. Instead, the bits went to Iceland first with stops in London, Montreal, New York, Dallas, and Kansas City along the way. So who did it? It's hard to say. The author talked to Cowie last night, and he didn't seem to have much of an idea. Quote, We can track whose infrastructure was used to carry out these attacks because they leave their footprints in the global routing table, he said. Tracing it back to who engineered this attack is another thing entirely. So somebody out there was able to hijack a great deal of internet traffic and force that traffic to go through specific ISPs, which it could if it chose to and had it set up properly and, and or if it owned those ISPs, could scrape data from that internet traffic. So really interesting story about the how how the internet works and how it's controlled and how it can be manipulated. And that story again was in All Things D by Arik A R I K Hesseldahl.
It is inane and terrible. You might find this terrible. I don't think it could be classified as inane. A story in from Geekosystem.com by Sam Maggs. Huge swarms of crazy ants are taking over the southern U.S. Raspberry or tawny crazy ants have invaded southern United States from Brazil, and they're coming for you and everything you've ever loved. There's no stopping these ants, which travel in hordes of millions and are invading homes so quickly that no one knows how to stop them. There are plenty of terrifying tidbits in John Mullum's New York Times piece on crazy ants, like the story of the man who discovered they are so horrifyingly pervasive that he had to shop back over five gallons of them out of an air vent, or the guy who opened the back of his broken TV to find it pulsating with a mass of ants that had completed a circuit and shorted the television. Because crazy ants love electricity and electronic devices. They've shut down whole chemical plants. One small miracle is the fact that crazy ants don't bite, but it hardly matters since the ants have asphyxiated chickens by invading their nasal cavities and blinded cows by swarming their eyes. So, an actual Texas A&M entomologist is quoted as saying, quote, you figure these stories are laced with hyperbole, but when you get there, it's unreal. So, crazy ants invading the southern United States and wreaking havoc. One day, the ants will take over the world. Mark my words. iMore.com's uh, writer Peter Cohen published this story. Johnny Ive and Mark Newsom's charity auction for Red, the AIDS charity, has raised nearly $13 million. 43 items were auctioned, including several designed in a collaboration between Apple Senior Vice President of Design Johnny Ive and renowned industrial designer Mark Newson. The dozens of products weren't only designed by Ive and Newson. They included designer pens, suitcases, a car, an SUV, and much more. But Ivan Newsom's designs fetched some of the highest prices. A pair of rose gold Apple earbuds, for example, were expected to fetch $25,000, but were sold for $461,000. Ivan Newsom's aluminum, the red desk, was anticipated to sell for half a million dollars. It went for $1.685 million. A Steinway Grand Piano customized by Ivan Newsom was estimated at $200,000 but sold for $1.925 million. A Leica digital camera was expected to fetch about $750,000 and sold for $1.805 million. And a new Mac Pro customized with a red aluminum exterior fetched $977,000. It's a sign of the end times. LG smart TVs are so smart they might be spying on you while you change the channels. In a story written by Mary Beth Quirk of Consumerist.com, a blogger who calls himself Dr. Beat wrote in a blog post earlier this week, and this was back in November, that he'd run a traffic analysis on his home router and found that whenever he switched the channel on his LG smart TV, the TV would ping LG's servers with the name of the channel along with his TV's individual identification number. 
So whenever he switched from, say, the BBC to SCUS, his TV would repeat back to the mother, would report back to the mothership. Even when he went to his TV settings and switched the collection of watching info that was set to on by default to off, it still sent that information to LG servers. The company touts this ability to advertisers as it allows marketers to target ads according to what the person watching the TV might like based on your favorite channels. Dr. Beat found the examples of this in a corporate video. Quote, LG Smart Ad analyzes users' favorite programs, online behavior, and search keywords and other information to offer relevant ads to target audiences. For example, LG Smart Ad can feature sharp suits to men or alluring cosmetics and fragrance to women. So, not only odd behavior, but kind of perhaps sexist as well. Furthermore, LG Smart Ad offers useful and various advertising performance reports that live broadcasting ads cannot to accurately identify actual advertising effectiveness. But that's not all. Dr. Beat writes, Sometimes his TV would upload the names of personal files he'd stored on an external USB drive that was plugged into the TV. Even though the upload did not include the actual files, these names could relay private information, like a video with his kids' names as the title. He tested it out by creating a file, and then he looked for that file name in the information that was sent to LG, and sure enough, there it was. Engadget brought up Dr. Beat's work to LG, and they received this statement. Quote, we're looking into this now. We take these claims very seriously and are currently investigating the situation at numerous local levels since our smart TVs differ in features and functions from one market to another. We work hard to get privacy right and have made this our top priority. So your smart TV may be smarter than you know and may be reporting back information about what you're watching. Look at that. Corey Doctorow writes on boingboing.net. In the city of Miami Gardens outside of Miami, Florida, the police use aggressive campaigns of stop and frisk and absurd arrests to bolster their records to the great detriment of the African-American majority who live there. For example, a young man named Earl Sampson has been stopped by the Miami Gardens police 258 times. They've searched him more than 100 times, and they've arrested him for trespassing 56 times. He's never been convicted of anything apart from simple possession of small amounts of marijuana. Sampson's trespassing arrests occurred at his place of work, a convenience store called the 207 Quick Stop. Sampson was repeatedly arrested for trespassing there over the loud objections of his employer, Alex Saleh, who owns the store and who explained to the police that Sampson was not trespassing in his store. When Saleh gathered video evidence that showed the police had falsified their arrest reports and violated the rights of his customers, he was targeted for police harassment, including falsified vehicle stops and personal threats. Soleil is suing, federal civil, suing for federal civil rights violation, alleging that Miami Gardens police 
quote, routinely under the direction of the city's top leaders, directed its officers to conduct racial profiling, illegal stops and searches, and other activities to cover up illegal misconduct. Soleil, whose store is tucked between a public park and working-class neighborhoods, contends that Miami Gardens police officers have repeatedly used racial slurs to refer to his customers and treat most of them like they are hardened criminals. Quote, police line them up and tell them to put their hands against the wall. I started asking myself, is this normal? I just kept thinking, police can't do this, Soleil said. Last year, Soleil, armed with a cache of videos, filed an internal affairs complaint about the arrests at his store. From that point, he said, police officers became even more aggressive. One evening, shortly after he had complained a second time, a squadron of six uniformed Miami Gardens police officers marched into the store, he says. They lined up shoulder to shoulder, their arms crossed in front of them, blocking two grocery aisles. Can I help you, Soleil recalls asking. It was an entire police detail, known as the department's rapid action deployment squad, whom he had come to know from their frequent arrest sweeps. One went to use the restroom, and five of them stood there silently for a full ten minutes. Then they all marched out. That we have complete and utter freedom of speech, uh, for the most part. And now you're supposed to just go ahead and move on. Let's move on to this story from CBC.ca. Two quick-thinking men on Newfoundland's northern coast managed to save a Greenland shark from choking to death on a large piece of moose hide this past weekend. Derek Chalk said he was driving down a road by the harbor in Norris Arm North this past Saturday when he saw what he thought was a beached whale. When Chalk went closer to investigate, he realized it was a shark, which he estimated was about 2.5 meters long and weighed about 115 kilograms. The animal was still alive and had a large chunk of moose hide protruding from its mouth. Chalk said another local man, Jeremy Ball, arrived on the scene and started pulling on the moose chunk. The two men dislodged the chunk of moose from the shark, and then they set about getting the shark back into the water. One of them tied a rope around the shark's tail, and one of them pushed. He pulled the rope, and I pushed with my boots, said Chalk, and between the two of us, we got him out into deeper water. Chalk said the shark lay in about 30 centimeters of water for a few minutes. Then, all of a sudden, the water started coming out of its gills, and he started breathing. The shark hung around the area for a while before swimming out into the sea. I'm not finding any redeeming value in it. None at all. They saved the shark's life. That has some redeeming value, I guess. NASA to send seeds to the moon to grow lunar salad. Tele from the telegraph.co.uk by Richard Gray. NASA is planning to grow plants on the moon for the first time by sending basil, turnip, and cress seeds on a mission that will land on the lunar surface. The experiment will be the first attempt to germinate plants on another world. The seeds will be housed inside a specially constructed canister known as the Lunar Plant Growth Chamber that will carry enough air for 10 days. NASA says the air in the chamber would be adequate to allow the seeds to sprout and grow 
for five days. It is hoped that the latest experiment will help pave the way for astronauts to grow their own food while living on a lunar base. So, a test of plant growth on the moon by dropping some little uh, little greenhouse bombs onto the planet and watching what happens. That has nothing to do with this story. I'm giving you information that you're going to think is important, but it's not at all. The NSA hacked 50,000 global networks. Another story from Corey Doctorow of boingboing.net. A new Snowden leak sheds more light on, quote, tailored access operations, a catalog of standard attacks against routers and other internet infrastructure. The new leak details the deployment of malware against 50,000 computer networks worldwide in cooperation with GCHQ, the British spy agency. The program dates back to 1998, and the infected networks are referred to internally as sleeper cells that can be switched on or off at will. Cyber operations are increasingly important for the NSA. Computer hacks are relatively inexpensive and provide the NSA with opportunities to obtain information that they otherwise would not have access to. The NSA presentation shows their CNE operations in countries such as Venezuela and Brazil. The malware installed in these countries can remain active for years without being detected. Sleeper cells can be activated with a single push of a button. One more. All right, if you haven't seen everything, if you haven't seen this, you haven't seen everything. Uh, let's see, who had the... The site called Geekology had the wherewithal to publish this story. Apparent, apparently, these little rubber underwears from Bandai are all the rage for smartphone owners in Japan because Japan is Japan. And the author writes, I am tired of trying to understand. They come in a variety of styles and are sold randomly in plastic capsule machines for 200 yen, which is about $2. Didn't get the pair you want? Try again. Still didn't? Now would be a good time to reevaluate just how important having a particular pair of rubber underwear for your smartphone is to you. And the story actually has some images of the little... Uh, it can't quite be called a case because it just looks like a tiny little pair of underwear that will go on the bottom of your iPhone, cover up your home button, um, which can still be depressed through the underwear. And I don't know what to think, um, but there you have it. If you want to see it, go to geekology.com or go to youtube.com and uh, probably look up iPhone underwear, I guess. Oh no! Oh no is right. But let's kind of get all that fun, quirky stuff out of there. Alright, that was uh, the fun, quirky stuff. Maybe we'll have some more fun, quirky stuff, stuff uh, later. But this isn't it. Um... Tasneem Nashrullah in BuzzFeed.com had this story. 
A man firing a shotgun in his apartment in Iceland's capital Reykjavik was shot and killed by armed police on Monday in the first police killing of the country. The police first fired tear gas canisters through the windows of the shooter's building, but failed to subdue the unidentified 59-year-old man. They then entered the man's apartment, but he continued to fire his shotgun, injuring one officer in the face and another in the hand. A special armed force unit then shot the man, who died after he was taken to the hospital. The man's motive for the shooting was unclear, and he was thought to be acting alone. The Icelandic police chief told reporters, Police regret the incident and would like to extend their condolences to the family of the man. He also said the police killing was without precedent in Iceland. The police conduct in the incident is under investigation and the special forces are being counseled. Iceland has one of the lowest crime rates in the world. Its regular police force is unarmed. So get this straight. This is not the first kill, shooting, first fatal shooting by police in Iceland in this year, which is practically over. This is the first fatal shooting by policemen in Iceland ever. And just for reference, last year in New York alone, there were reportedly 16 fatal police shootings. National statistics on police use of deadly force are not comprehensive in the United States because the FBI does not keep records of this. However, according to the agency's Uniform Crime Report, which includes justifiable homicide by weapon law enforcement, Close to 400 quote-unquote felons have been killed annually by law enforcement officers over the past several years. So in the U.S., 400 people per year are killed by police. And in Iceland, one person ever has been shot and killed by police. If you want a sign that humanity's still got it going on, go to Iceland. Someday you could use the iPhone 5S Touch ID sensor as a trackpad, according to a new patent. According to a new patent revealed by Unwired View, Apple could be planning some really cool things for Touch ID in the future. As you can see from the image above, which you, of course, can't see, a uh, possible use for the fingerprint scanning home button is the ability for it to track your finger. In essence, this would make the Touch ID sensor into a trackpad of sorts. Here's a little more explanation of the patent filing. The key to your home button's capability to act as a trackpad is the extreme sensitivity of a fingerprint sensor. At 500 dpi, the Touch ID sensor is able to read not just overall outline of your fingerprint, but the smallest details of, a, of fingerprint ridges, and it can recognize multiple prints in any orientation really fast. All that is needed to transform Touch ID from identification device into trackpad is adding the ability to follow changes of scanned fingerprints, or even just a small part of it, over time. For example, tracking its movement over the surface of the button. Apple could bring this ability to existing iPhone 5S devices using a simple software update. So potential in the future for expanded use of Touch ID. Our children will never know what that's like.
Well, they they might if you get them an iPhone 5s someday, they might know exactly what that's like. Surprise! Global carbon emissions to set new record in 2013. Story published by NBCNews.com. Global emissions of the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide are on a course to rise yet again in 2013, reaching a new high of nearly 40 billion tons. And I've just lost the story because I pressed the wrong button. So let's jump back to it. All right, the projected 2.1% rise over 2012 figures is not a surprise at all. Rosen Moriarty, a research scientist with the Global Carbon Project at the University of East Anglia's Tyndall Center for Climate Research, told NBC News in an email. In fact, it is a little lower than the value we predicted last year. We are 61% above 1990 levels in terms of emissions. Absolute emissions are still going up. And while China's growth has slowed with its economy, other developing countries such as India, with burgeoning economies, will bring emissions up unless we collectively find a way to speed up low-carbon development and reduce the dependence of rich countries on fossil fuels. According to the report, the biggest contributors to fossil fuel emissions in 2012 were China with 27%, the United States with 14%, the European Union with 10%, and India with 6%. So a new record has been set. It's just bad. That's bad, and this is bad. This story is by Andrew Kaczynski from BuzzFeed.com. Several House Republicans who voted Thursday for a bill that slashed billions of dollars from the food stamp program personally received large farm subsidies for family farms. The bill cutting the food stamp program narrowly passed on a mostly party line 217 to 210 vote. During the food stamp debate, GOP Rep. Stephen Fincher, who received thousands in farm subsidies, responded to a Democratic congressman during the debate over the cuts by quoting the Bible saying, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Fincher himself has received his own large share of government money. From 99 to 2012, Stephen and Lynn Fincher Farms received $3,483,824 in agriculture subsidies. Last year, they took in $70,574. Another Republican congresswoman who voted to make cuts to the food stamp program was Representative Vicki Hartzler of Missouri. Her farm received more than $800,000 in Department of Agriculture subsidies from 95 to 2012. In 2001, her farm received $135,000. Representative Christy Noam of South Dakota, who also voted to make cuts to the program, was a partner in Rakota Valley Ranch, her family's farm, and previously had nearly a 17% stake through 2008. The farm received $3.4 million in subsidies from 95 to 2012. The Environmental Working Group, which analyzes subsidy data, says the estimated amount of subsidies attributed to Representative Noem from 95 to 2012 is $500,000. So it is all good for representatives um, to receive large government subsidies but it is not good 
for individuals who are the poorest in the society to get very small government subsidies to help feed themselves. By saying stuff like this, you're setting yourself up. Well, then let it be. Three teens arrested for waiting while black. This story from Gawker.com. Police officer arrested three teens last week as they were standing outside a store in downtown Rochester, New York. Their crime? Waiting for a school bus. The three boys, Ralik Red, Dekon Carlock, and Juan Tauj Weathers, are star athletes at Edison Tech High School and were waiting to be taken to a basketball game when they were spotted by an officer. The officer asked the teens to disperse, but they explained that they were waiting to be picked up by a bus. The officer again asked the teens to disperse. We tried to tell them that we were waiting for the bus, one of the boys told WHEC. We weren't catching a city bus, but we were catching a yellow bus. He didn't care. He arrested us anyways. The three were charged with disorderly conduct and obstructing the sidewalk. While they were being handcuffed, their coach, Jacob Scott, arrived at the scene and attempted to reason with the cop. He goes on to say, If you don't disperse, you're going to get booked as well, Scott recalled. I said, Sir, I'm the adult. I'm their varsity basketball coach. How can you book me? What am I doing wrong? Matter of fact, what are these guys doing wrong? Sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes stuff happens. Sometimes terrible stuff happens. This story from NPR.org by Krishnadev Kalamur. The U.S.-led International Coalition in Afghanistan is apologizing for an airstrike that killed a two-year-old child, a death that Afghan President Hamid Karzai said imperils a long-term security agreement between the two countries. The International Security Assistance Force said it carried out an airstrike Thursday on a militant riding a motorbike in Helmand province. The child was also killed and two women were injured in the attack. We live in a very different time now. One year after the Tazreen factory fire in Bangladesh, many retailers that sold garments produced there or inside the Rana Plaza building that collapsed last spring are refusing to join an effort to compensate the families of the more than 1,200 workers who died in those disasters. The International Labor Organization is working with Bangladeshi officials, labor groups, and several retailers to create ambitious compensation funds to assist not just the families of the dead, but also more than 1,800 workers who were injured, some of them still hospitalized. A handful of retailers led by Primark, an Anglo-Irish company, and CNA, a Dutch-German company, are deeply involved in getting long-term compensation funds off the ground, one for Rana Plaza's victims and one for the victims of the Tazreen fire, which killed 112 workers last November 24. But to the dismay of those Pushing to create the compensation funds, neither Walmart, Sears, Children's Place, nor any of the other American companies that were selling goods produced at Tazreen or Rana Plaza, Plaza 
have agreed to contribute to the efforts. Even as labor advocates single out Primark for praise, they single out Walmart for criticism, partly because production documents recovered after the Tazreen fire indicate that two months before the fire erupted, 55% of the factory's production was being made for Walmart contractors. Walmart has repeatedly been asked to contribute to the anticipated $6 million compensation program for Tazreen survivors and families. Walmart is the one company that is showing an astonishing lack of responsibility considering that so much of their product was being made at the Tazreen factory, said Samantha Marr, campaign coordinator for the British arm of the Clean Clothes campaign. So while a couple of companies are stepping up to do the right thing by workers who you know, have been exploited for too long and who were killed or injured in serious disasters. Many other companies that should be showing compassion and should be showing support are simply not doing so. Are you kidding me? Unfortunately, not a UK man tries to retrieve $7.5 million in bitcoins from a dump. This story from news.cnet.com by Stephen Shankland. A man from Newport, Wales is searching the dump for a hard drive he threw away despite having $7.5 million worth of bitcoins on it. Bitcoins are a digital currency whose value has benefited from an intense attention and speculative investing. The value of bitcoins has risen dramatically, but is not stable and does so show major up and down shifts, rising to as high as above $1,000 per bitcoin to recently down to about $550 per bitcoin. Uh, but bitcoins initially, when they first came out, when this gentleman first was... Um, Mining bitcoins and collecting bitcoins had very, very little of the value they have now. James Howells chose the latter approach. They can be stored as data in digital wallets using online services, mobile phones, or computer hard drives. James Howells chose the latter approach when he stored 7,500 bitcoins away in 2009 when they were worth a trifling fraction of their current value, or their value as of the writing of this story, of more than $1,000 each. But he threw the old hard drive away, and now it is likely buried several feet deep in a trash in landfill the size of a football field, according to a BBC report. He is searching the landfill, but he lacks the funds for a serious hunt. If only he could guarantee that he would actually find it, he would have all the funds he would need to hunt it down. So there was an Indiegogo effort to fund a recovery effort. Let me just actually follow along there and see what has happened with this particular Indiegogo effort. In fact, this Indiegogo effort has 57 hours left, and according to this, has raised zero pounds of its 3,000 pound goal. So no one is interested in providing funding to help this individual um, look for his lost hard drive.
and I don't necessarily blame them. No guarantee where that hard drive could be. No guarantee that there are actually uh, 7,000 bitcoins on that hard drive, um, if it does even in fact exist. So not a surprise that people are not willing to uh, give money for the search. So if I see an update on this particular story, I will talk about it in the future. This is the worst radio ever. I know, but I'm trying. It's only episode number 13. Give me a little time. So a story from BuzzFeed.com by Alan White uh, talks about an amazing rescue that happened. Um, this particular story is pretty heavy on the images, but does kind of walk through what is going on. Uh, divers found Harrison O'Keen at the bottom of the sea off the coast of Nigeria. In May, his tugboat capsized. He survived in a four-foot square air pocket for three days with just a bottle of Coca-Cola. He was unexpectedly discovered alive by a South African diver who was on a body recovery mission. He was the sole survivor of the disaster, with 11 other crew members lost their lives. And there is a video of the rescue available. So this, this gentleman survived at the bottom of the ocean for three days in an air pocket in his sunk boat. Pretty amazing story that he was able to survive there. Storyinzerohedge.com by Tyler Durden. Which America do you live in? 21 hard-to-believe facts about wealthy America and poor America. I'm not going to read all 21 of the facts in this episode, but I will read the first few. Recently, the Dow hit a brand new record high in Wall Street, celebrated since the financial crisis of 2008, stocks have been on an unprecedented run. The top performers in the market have not just made millions of dollars, they have made billions of dollars. So here are the top five, or the first five, of the 21 facts. The lowest earning 23,300,000 Americans combined make 36% less than the highest earning 2,900 Americans do. 40% of all American workers make less than $20,000 per year. According to the Pew Research Center, the top 7% of all U.S. households own 63% of all the wealth in the country. On average, households in the top 7% have 24 times as much wealth as house households in the bottom 93%. So that's on average the bottom 93%. That includes the people that are in the 93rd percentile and the people that are at zero. And the, the top 7% have 24 times as much wealth as the bottom 93%. 
And number five, according to numbers that were just released this week, 49.7 million Americans are living in poverty. That is a brand new, all-time record high. And I will give you some more of those facts in future episodes. WikiLeaks has published a leaked draft of a secret international trade agreement that could create stricter laws governing digital copyright and freedom of speech. The leaked chapter focuses on intellectual property rights and is part of a broader agreement called the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that has been in the works for several years and now, for several years now, between the U.S., Canada, Australia, Japan, and several other countries. Though the draft is being written in secret, it's rumored to be moving forward on a fast track through Congress. Some details of the agreement have been leaked in the past, but today's come from quite a recent draft, dated August 30, 2013. It's also the only one to detail which countries are in support of which proposals. Quote, one could see the TPP as a Christmas wish list for major corporations, and the copyright parts of the text support such a view, Matthew Rimmer, an expert in intellectual property law, tells the Herald. Hollywood, the music industry, big IT companies such as Microsoft, and the pharmaceutical sector would all be very happy with this. The United States and Japan are also currently in opposition to a proposed chapter of the agreement, that would seek to maintain a balance between the rights of intellectual property holders and the legitimate interests of users and the community when it comes to intellectual property. The TPP would also allow pharmaceutical patents to be expanded, reports the Herald. Obama administration proposals are the worst, the most damaging for health. We have seen in a U.S. trade agreement to date, Peter Maybard, Maybardark, Director of the Consumer Advocacy Group Public Citizen Global Access to Medicines Program says in a statement, and soon the administration is expected to propose additional TPP terms that would lock Americans into high prices for cancer drugs for years to come. Not a big surprise if you watch what the government does and you've seen the trade agreements that we have been party to in the past. They are written by and for the benefit of big businesses, and do not very often take into account the needs of consumers. The hell is wrong with us? So tune in next time and we will find out more about what the hell is wrong with us. Thank you for listening to episode number 13 of Unrelated Things. You can find out more at unrelatedthings.net. If you want to send me an email, send me that at unrelatedthings at gmail.com. And you can also follow Unrelated Things on Twitter. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next time. It's Unrelated Things.